Hello and welcome. My name is Matt Rojanski and I'm director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Thank you all for joining us for our fourth installment of the Global Perspectives on Russia series. Today we'll be joined by Norwegian State Secretary Auden Halverson, Mike Sprega, director of the Wilson Center's Polar Institute and Global Risk and Resilience Program, and Dan Hamilton, director of the Wilson Center's Global Europe Program for a conversation on Norwegian-Russian relations. Before I start, I'd like to remind everybody you can keep up to date with our upcoming events, including in this series, uh, and our publications on our website, uh, and follow our podcasts, Kenan X, and our newest podcast, The Russia File, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, you can also find our latest analysis of events in Russia and the region on our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. If during the course of today's event you have a question, including right now, feel free to submit questions in advance. You can submit it via email to kennan at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet it to at Kennan Institute or post it to our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when sending in questions. It makes it more likely that your question will be asked. Uh, now I'm going to introduce my colleagues, Dan Hamilton and Mike Sprega. Uh, and Mike will then in turn introduce and moderate the discussion with State, State Secretary Halverson. Uh, Dan Hamilton uh, is our, of course, uh, new and distinguished director of the Global Europe Program here at the Wilson Center. Uh, he's also the Austrian Marshall Plan Foundation Distinguished Fellow uh, and is a widely ac recognized expert on U.S. foreign policy and European, Eurasian and transatlantic security, economic and political affairs. He's testified on many occasions uh, before committees of the U.S. Congress and European parliaments and is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of Johns Hopkins SICE, where he co-leads the school's postdoctoral program on the United States, Europe, and world order. Uh, previously at SICE, he was founding director of the Center for Transatlantic Relations, and for 15 years also served as executive director of the American Consortium for European Union Studies. You can find Dan's full bio on the Wilson Center website. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Mike Sprague, is founding director of the Polar Institute and director of the Global Risk and Resilience Program at the Wilson Center. Uh, he is an Alaskan and a geographer by training, and his work focuses on the changing geography of the Arctic and Antarctic landscapes, Arctic policy, and the impacts and implications of a changing climate on political, social, economic, environmental, and security regimes in the Arctic. Mike's also author of the biography, Bradford Washburn, A Life of Exploration, is an affiliate professor at the International Arctic Research Center at the University of Alaska Fairbanks and co-director of the University of the Arctic's Institute for Arctic Policy and has served on a number of nonprofit boards and advisory committees, including as past chairman of the Institute of the North. So it's a great pleasure to be able to hand over this conversation to Mike and uh, I'll be happy to join in later after we have heard uh, from the secretary, please. Matt, thank you for that introduction, and it's a pleasure to join you and uh, our colleague Dan Hamilton for another Kennan Institute event. Uh, a note of appreciation to the staff of the Kennan Institute, our Global Europe Program, and the Polar Institute for all of their assistance. We, we simply can't do any of these programs without uh, that talented group of colleagues. Norwegian Embassy in, in Washington, D.C., and members of the Foreign Minister's Office in Oslo, as always, their support and assistance is essential and always appreciated. You know, as the pace of change in the Arctic continues to quicken, environmentally, economically, and politically, there's a renewed focus on the geopolitical landscape of the region. And for many reasons we'll learn about today, Norway is an important nation when it comes to reshaping and reimagining the future of the Arctic. And it has a 
complex relationship with the Russian Federation, a nation that also plays an important role in shaping the future of the Arctic. This relationship has a long history of cooperation and economic ties, as well as long-standing security concerns. In fact, Norway just released their High North White Paper, which lays out the country's vision for their Arctic region. The paper provides insight into foreign policy, security, and economic development in their Arctic. But each component of the White Paper will undoubtedly impact Norwegian-Russian relations well into the future. And this is why we're so pleased to highlight today the state of Norwegian-Russian relations and their future trajectory. So it's with this backdrop that I welcome Mr. Audun Halverson, State Secretary to the Norwegian Minister of Foreign Affairs. Secretary Halverson has held several key positions in the Norwegian government, including political, political advisor to the Norwegian Minister of Defense and political advisor on defense and foreign affairs, as well as defense policy, scrutiny and constitutional affairs for the Conservative Party Parliamentary Group. So it's a pleasure to turn over the virtual floor to Secretary Halverson. Mr. Secretary. Thank you so much, Mike, and uh, thank you for, for hosting this event uh, at the Wilson Center and for to give me this opportunity to, to give an overview of, of Norway's relations with, with Russia and the Norwegian government's Russia policy. And uh, as a small European country bordering Russia, Russia, but of course firmly grounded in the Western community of, of values and interests, not least as a founding member of, of NATO going back to 1949, it is obvious that the relationship is a key factor in Norway's foreign security and defense policy and very high on any Norwegian government's agenda. And it is a relationship that needs to be managed in good times and in challenging times uh, and in a way that contributes to stability and predictability in the region. So as you all know, uh, Norway and Russia are neighbors in the high north. Uh, we share a 200 kilometer land border between the Troms and Finnmark County on the Norwegian side and Murmansk Oblast on the Kola Peninsula. And then there are a few thousand kilometers of sea border uh, stretching north from, from there. So this means that my initial remarks will focus primarily uh, on the Arctic, on high north issues and security policy. But of course the relationship goes beyond that and we can touch upon that in the discussion later. But let me start by, by highlighting two, the, the two factors uh, that shape our relations with Russia today that have done so for decades and will undoubtedly uh, continue to do so in, in the future. And the first is Norway's membership in NATO. Our decision in 1949 to be among the founding nations of the alliance placed us firmly in the Western camp of democracies and embracing a policy of collective defense against the Soviet Union that presented a clear military challenge. And after the thaw uh, through the 1990s and the two early 2000s, uh, the recent years, I would say, unfortunately, have returned us to a situation marked by suspicion and the lack of trust. And we see, uh, as you all know, today's Russian leadership regards NATO as a challenge. It continues to act in ways that are contrary to our security interests and the security interests of our close allies. And this is obviously shaping our Russia policy today. The second factor is geography. Norway and Russia are, as I mentioned, neighbors, both at land and sea. And this has fostered close links between our two nations for centuries. And in addition, Norway and Russia do not share a history of war and rivalry uh, if you go back in time. This has been Russia's most peaceful border over the centuries. And Eastern Finnmark was one of the only two areas where the Red Army left peacefully in 1945 after having defeated the Nazis. But the bonds go back centuries before that uh, on a people-to-people -people basis, commercially, culturally. 
So peaceful coexistence has really been the norm, both on the national level and especially among those living as neighbors uh, along the border in the far north. We have a long tradition of cooperating uh, when it's in our mutual interest and when we face common challenges, which is, of course, also a necessity given the conditions uh, in the Arctic. So together, these two factors illustrate why Russia remains a key factor in Norwegian foreign policy. And Russia has always uh, presented, I would say, its fair share of, of opportunities and challenges. Uh, and successive Norwegian governments have to find a way to, of dealing with Russia that best secures our national interests. So relations with Russia are very high on our foreign policy agenda. And unfortunately, I would say mostly for negative reasons today. Uh, Russia presents a number of challenges to the interests of Norway and our key partners. And this is, I think, especially true in the area of military and security policy, where we have seen a uh, somewhat worrisome trend over the last, uh, let's say, 20 years. We see a Russia that has significantly strengthened its military capabilities during the past few years, not least on the Kola Peninsula, which uh, remains the highest density of nuclear weapons anywhere on the globe. This military modernization has been accompanied by large-scale, more complex exercises, frequently unannounced military uh, exercises, as well as an increasing pattern of operation uh, well into the North Atlantic into the North Sea, and at times very close to our territorial waters. And this is one of the reasons for Norway being a very strong proponent of transparency and predictability regarding exercises and military activities. And we should expect Russia uh, to show the same degree of transparency as we do and our allies do, but unfortunately that is of course not the case today. And such a lack of transparency contributes uh, negatively to good neighborly relations uh, or reducing the level of tensions in today's Europe. And only through transparency and predictability can we lower the risk of misunderstandings and dangerous escalations, not least in the high north. And this is something we consistently stress in our talk, talks with the Russian, Russians. So this development is also why Norway has worked uh, very closely with like-minded allies, uh, not least the US and the UK, to renew NATO's understanding of the North and the North Atlantic as a strategic theater, pushing for a form of the NATO command structure, uh, a new maritime doctrine, updated uh, graduated response plans for the region. And NATO's uh, exercise, Trident Juncture 2018, was the biggest NATO exercise in the region for uh, approximately 30 years. And in addition, uh, we, uh, on the national level, have substantially strengthened our defense capabilities, increasing defense spending and having reached 2% uh, this year. So maintaining that balance between deterrence and reassurance vis-a-vis -vis Russia is fundamental for Norwegian security policy. And it is ever more uh, important, I would say, in light of the increasing military activity by Russia and a growing military presence uh, in the region, also by key NATO allies. Norway is a strong proponent of NATO's two-track approach, but stressing that it must be focused, meaningful, and from a position of strength. Our positions are also clear regarding other Russian policies, other Russian actions. Uh, Russia's aggression in uh, eastern Ukraine, the destabilization of Ukraine, have led to a conflict that has claimed thousands of lives, and its illegal annexation of Crimea showed its blatant disregard uh, for international law. And both actions have weakened not only Ukraine's, but of course the whole of Europe's uh, and the transatlantic security. So together with the US and other allies, we have been very firm in our condemnation of uh, Russia's actions and Norway is fully aligned with the European Union's restrictive measures when it comes to Russia. And we consider it vital that we continue to seek transatlantic unity uh, in our approach uh, and in maintaining uh, the sanctions and the restrictive measures. 
So Russia's response to our policies and our clear positions on these issues has been to step up uh, with very strong verbal attacks on Norwegian security and defense policy. And in particular, uh, our close bilateral uh, defense cooperation with the US and other allies. And Russian accusations in this regard have become much more pro pronounced during uh, the last uh, few years. Another source of contention is our criticism of the human rights situation in Russia. And it is clear that it, it is becoming increasingly uh, difficult and serious. Uh, and we cannot ignore serious human rights abuses and repression measures of that kind. We see that Russia's laws on so-called foreign agents and desirable organizations not only undermine the work of local civil society and weakens human rights, but they also hamper cooperation uh, between Russian NGOs uh, with their Norwegian partners uh, and has uh, serious implications for the people-to-people -people cooperation uh, in the North, which is very much built around civil society. Uh, <clears throat> so, uh, we see that the Russian government's actions, both at home and abroad, pose challenges that we have to address and that limit the scope of our bilateral relations. But within these constraints, I would say that our policy is always to seek uh, dialogue and cooperation where it is possible. Uh, we believe that we should engage the Russians uh, where we have common interests and where non-cooperation uh, would cause more harm than good, so to say. Some examples of, of this that are actually well-functioning uh, today. I would say resource management and tactical cooperation. Uh, we see that our joint fisheries management in the Barents Sea has stabilized the stock of cod and prevented overfishing, which was a serious problem if you go back uh, a few decades. And today, this is probably the largest, best-managed uh, stock of, of uh, cod and perhaps uh, of, of fish stock anywhere in the world. And it shows that we can cooperate with Russia despite disagreements in other areas, provided we have a, a common interest in doing so. Uh, other examples are projects to handle uh, nuclear safety, nuclear waste, uh, which has been stockpiled very, very close to the Norwegian border in the north, and improve the environment. Uh, so these are other efforts of areas of, of joint effort uh, that I would say have not been affected by the political developments in Russia. We really appreciate uh, the cooperation with Russia in these areas, and we maintain several formal structures uh, in the form of bilateral commissions to keep that cooperation going. Uh, another example is our two countries' approach to multilateral cooperation in the Arctic, uh, such as the Arctic Council, where we generally see Russia's contribution as constructive. Uh, I would say that the Arctic overall remains an area of relatively low tension, even despite Russia's military buildup, and we work hard uh, to keep it that way. And I would say that same goes for uh, all the other members of the Arctic Council and the Barents Eurasia Corporation. Uh, and these are, of course, the uh, the two main multilateral bodies for the region. Uh, and we can come back to that perhaps in, in the discussion. Uh, but where we have common goals, we still believe it's important to work toward them through dialogue, practical cooperation and engagement. Uh, and I would say we also look forward to working closely with Russia when they take over the chairmanship of the Arctic Council in, in May of next year. So another point I would like to, to highlight in, in that regard uh, is that there is no uh, legal vacuum uh, in the Arctic. And of course, this is a question that very often comes up. There is an extensive legal governance framework that applies to the region. Uh, and we believe that the law of the sea forms uh, really a solid basis for cooperation. So no need for new governance mechanisms, as some seem to suggest. 
uh, and we really believe that uh, we need an international debate on the Arctic that should be based on, on facts. We see that, of course, that the broader geopolitical situation affects the Arctic, uh, but uh, I would say regrettably, we, we still hear uh, exaggerated uh, assessments about tensions and conflicts and sort of this ongoing resource race in the region uh, that uh, are at least occasionally uh, rather hyped. But of course, engaging the, the Russian authorities also requires functioning lines of communication. So Norway maintained close contacts with the Russian government. Uh, we have kept a political dialogue open uh, also over the last uh, four to five years. Uh, and key Norwegian institutions such as the Coast Guard and the Border Guard cooperate very well with their Russian counterparts. Uh, and in addition, a military uh, to military hotline has been in operation for years, uh, with of course the aim of addressing incidents and avoiding uh, unintended escalation. Uh, we also seek to engage Russia on other international arenas. Um, come January, Norway will become a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council, and we will try to explore avenues for cooperating with Russia on solving crisis and common challenges where that is possible within the mandate of the Council. And of course, uh, Russia's track record on the Council gives us absolutely no illusions that this will be, be easy, uh, but we will continue to seek engagement and consensus where it can be reached. Uh, I would say the same goes for the OSE, the Council of Europe, other important uh, parts of the, uh, of the European uh, security and political infrastructure, where we often find ourselves on, on opposite, side, opposite sides uh, of the issues with Russia, but still try to find common ground where that remains possible. So I think I'll, I'll leave it at that for my initial remarks, and we can come back to, to other aspects, uh, such as uh, the economy, the environment, uh, the work of the Arctic Council, or other examples in the discussion. But uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. You've given us a lot here to, to think about. Uh, and I want to thank you very much for that very broad uh, narrative, which also provided some wonderful insight, uh, not only to the current uh, relationship, but, you know, foreshadowing the future relationship. Let me open it first. I have many questions, but let me open it to my colleagues first for, for their thoughts and reactions and maybe a question or two before I ask a, a question follow up and then we'll start taking questions from those who have uh, provided some online. Uh, Matt, maybe I'll ask you perhaps to go first and, and ask a question or provide some insight and then Dan, I'll, I'll come to you and then we'll keep going in this rather organic discussion that we'll have here for the next hour. Uh, sure. Thank you, Mike, and uh, and thank you, Secretary Halverson. Uh, I I have had uh, Norwegian security very much on the mind as the last couple of nights I've been streaming the Twelfth Man on Netflix, uh, a uh, kind of fun but also very bleak, uh, very winter appropriate uh, World War II uh, true adventure story. Uh, so I appreciate especially kind of some of the images that your your remarks conjured in my mind. Um, just a couple of thoughts and a couple of questions to put on the table and then you address them however and whenever you like. Uh, bigger picture, I find it very interesting uh, in the case of Norway that we are we're clearly balancing uh, two fairly exclusive, exclusive uh, sets of interests that in the case of Norway, they seem to coexist. In other cases, uh, for instance, with the United States, uh, the, the coexistence is, is much less comfortable. And what I mean by that is, you know, NATO solidarity being kind of a core NATO ally, you know, a, very much a, a core kind of participant in the transatlantic and, and European uh, family of nations, 
Uh, and that means uh, standing up against, uh, you know, Russian uh, destabilizing uh, and norm violating behavior. Uh, and yet, you know, I think your remarks underscored many times in many ways, pursuing uh, cooperation, overlapping interests and engagement, right? This magic, the E word engagement. Um, I wonder if there's some secret sauce that you can, uh, you know, other other than than obviously not being the United States, right? Which, if you listen to Vladimir Putin's press conference uh, this morning again, uh, the United States was practically the great Satan, right? There was the hand of the American special services behind everything bad happening in and around Russia. Not surprising, of course. Norway is not the United States, but I wonder if there's some some ethos, some philosophy, if you will, you could sort of share with us, uh, especially as we in the United States take the opportunity of a changing uh, of the guard in the administration to think about how to more successfully, more effectively balance these two sets of concerns, pushing back on Russia, but engaging and cooperating when it makes sense. That seems to be a fundamental dilemma. Um, and, and then I wanna ask more specifically about one aspect and that's the people to people aspect. Uh, you and Norway have a shared border. Uh, you have shared communities in the high north, um, you know, many shared, for example, uh, environmental uh, aspects of, of life, but uh, also human aspects. And, and, and I want to ask this in a specific context. This is not to pick on Norway regarding the recent uh, tit for tat spy uh, espionage issues. Uh, we have had our own in the United States, as you know, in recent years. Um, but it's, it's the context question. How do you maintain effective people-to-people -people links in a context where we know that at least in terms of dealing with the Russian side, the gatekeepers are the Siloviki, the gatekeepers are the security services, uh, and, and they really control that uh, as, a, as a former U.S. ambassador um, uh, to Moscow, John Byerly famously always said that the giant dial in the Kremlin sort of turning up the temperature, turning down the temperature anytime they want. I wonder if, if you have any kind of recipe for insulating that, uh, ensuring that it works, uh, not letting it get taken hostage uh, to some of these sort of tit for tat, almost Cold War dynamics around mutual suspicion and espionage and, and so forth. And then, and then just the last issue I wanted to throw out on the table, again, I don't have per se a, a pointed question on this, uh, that's the pandemic. Uh, you know, how is that looking in the kind of shared human space of, of the high north? Uh, how's it looking as between uh, Russia and Norway? Sorry, just some technical issues there. But thank you, Matt, for, for excellent comments and, and questions. Uh, and I think they are very much inter interconnected, actually, uh, because if you look at this, uh, your initial thoughts on this balancing act, I think that has very much been uh, the Norwegian approach uh, over time, going back decades, even back to the Cold War and the, uh, the uh, relationship to the Soviet Union. And part of that is very much dependent on exactly uh, the people-to-people -people cooperation. Uh, and as I mentioned very briefly, of course, uh, in the northern parts of Norway, uh, the Red Army was, were seen as liberators, and they were liberators. Uh, and they withdrew peacefully uh, after having liberated these, these territories. And that is a, a legacy that is not easily uh, broken, so to say and has really influenced uh, how uh, the people across the border view each other uh, over time. Uh, 
combined with with the ties going back uh, back even further. Uh, but the people-to-people -people cooperation really picked up uh, in the early 1990s uh, as part of the Barents cooperation introduced in 1993. Uh, and from the Norwegian government side, we fund uh, and have funded, uh, we probably spend 30, 35 million dollars each year on projects and exchanges and uh, uh, education programs, uh, cultural programs uh, across the border, uh, being managed by by local uh, stakeholders and and uh, local uh, networks. So it's it's a hugely important part of of maintaining that uh, trust and transparency across the border. Uh, and it's very popular. It's very popular both on the Russian side uh, and and also of course on the Norwegian side. So that has been a key part of of maintaining, uh, I would say, one leg of the relationship. Uh, but I have to say, it is becoming more difficult. Uh, it is becoming more difficult in light of the political changes on the Russian side, in the changes in Russian legis legislation, but also in the in the culture where, as you know, the West is being portrayed more and more as an, an opponent. And of course, that having now gone on, on over time really threatens to weaken these links, and we are seeing signs of that that happening. Uh, and then, of course, the the environment for cooperation is much less conducive now than it was uh, before 2013. Uh, we still continue to fund the programs and we will continue to do so uh, and try to maintain the links as close as possible. But it is uh, it is becoming more, uh, more difficult. And we see that the actors on the Russian side that have always been skeptical, always suspicious of this uh, cooperation uh, are gaining ground. So it's becoming more difficult to maintain it. I think that is a, a an impression that all NGOs and all sort of foreign actors working in Russia will will recognize. Uh, on the practical side, of course, on some of these aspects, when it comes to the cooperation in the north, there really is no alternative but cross-border cooperation. Uh, looking at uh, search and rescue operations, for example, uh, looking at environmental questions, as I mentioned, nuclear safety. Uh, we have uh, the nickel plant just across the border, which has uh, been spewing out the sulfur uh, for, for decades. Uh, and working together on these questions is, is really, uh, you know, for people to, to, to live and feel safe and secure in their day-to-day uh, -day environment, it, it's really, uh, it's, it really has to happen. So it's, uh, it's also a need of, of necessity and, and maintaining that uh, has been also, I think, a, confidence building measure to some extent uh, during more difficult times on the sort of national level. Thank you, Mr. Secretary, appreciate that. Uh, Matt's comments and thoughts were spot on. I kept writing down the two words that I have heard from my Norwegian colleagues and certainly have read in many documents, deterrence and reassurance. Those, those two words often come up in terms of relationship with with the Russian Federation, I think you've just highlighted that that careful balancing act between deterrence and reassurance. Uh, let me uh, now uh, welcome into the conversation uh, the director of our Global Europe program, Dan Hamilton. Dan. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Secretary, that's great to be here with you. I appreciate your comments. You know, you said at the very beginning of your remarks, Norway is a small country. Um, but in the Arctic, I've always been struck with how Norway is a big power. Uh, and uh, it's it, there's a real contrast.
stress there when you think about how Norway acts in the region. And I, I also appreciated how Norway's tried to balance, uh, you know, being a good ally and a good neighbor. Uh, and that, that, as Matt has said, that's a, that's a balancing act uh, people can learn uh, from. Uh, and earlier, you know, over time, successive Norwegian governments have said that it's really important to make sure the high north is an area of low tension uh, and how you balance that. So if, if we think about those aspects today, you talk about security geography. I just had a couple uh, questions for you along those lines. You mentioned you have a hot line and, you know, do things together bilaterally uh, with Russia to make sure there's no miscommunication. Um, but NATO and Russia have had trouble in that area. Uh, the incidents of air, you know, near air collisions of transponders being turned off of uh, the risk of accidents has grown uh, considerably at a time when sort of the framework of confidence building measures in Europe has sort of collapsed. And uh, there are any number now suggestions, and I think particularly with the new US administration, what can be done uh, between NATO and Russia, uh, made with Norwegian experience, to mitigate risk, to reduce the possibility of accidents, uh, uh, incidents, uh, beyond sort of uh, isolated, uh, you know, sort of channels that we might have. I think it's an important one. You mentioned the issue of transparency. The U.S. under the Trump administration left the Open Skies Treaty. Uh, it's it's difficult now to uh, procedurally in the U.S. to understand how we would return to that. Uh, we might have to go back to the Senate if we would do that. And so how Norway might think about the future of, of a treaty like that too, uh, going forward um, as part of that bundle. The other is sort of your point about geography. <clears throat> Norway is a NATO ally. Uh, is linked to some other NATO allies who are also have some concerns about Russia and the Baltic states. Uh, but between between you and, and them are two non-NATO uh, partners who are also, of course, very close partners to Norway, Sweden, and Finland. And while the cooperation has always uh, been close, and the Swedes uh, recently have made some interesting noises now about default NATO possibilities, Norway's always been very clear about drawing that line with its Swedish and Finnish colleagues saying, you are not a NATO ally. Being an ally really means something. And the Balts have been nervous also about uh, Russia, but then not sure they can count on Sweden and Finland really because they're not really you know, within the alliance. So an example is Baltic air policing. Uh, this has been an effort to try to, you know, help the Baltic states with their own sense of, of security, but it's not a NATO operation uh, because of some of these concerns with the Swedes and the Finns being involved. Do you, do you see some evolution maybe in that toward a NATO kind of effort? Uh, I would think a Norwegian voice there would be uh, quite important. And then my last point is, uh, Again, where it's this balance between connecting and engaging with Russia and uh, having some concerns, and it's the digital space. You know, this is the world we're in now. Um, there was a hack in the Norwegian parliament, uh, I believe directly attributed to Russia, uh, which caused some political concerns in Norway, clearly. But on the other hand, you see efforts in the Arctic region to try to connect uh, digitally. Uh, there's an Arctic Connect 
project that's being organized with Finland, particularly, but with Russia and Chinese uh, companies. Uh, but I think believe there's a trunk line that will go over to Norway uh, because you know parts of Norway want to be connected too, uh, and using the Arctic space as a way to connect digitally seems to be a new frontier of engagement. And I just wonder how how you're thinking about that uh, as you balance these uh, different priorities. Thank you, Dan. I'll I'll try to to answer briefly, but these are are great questions. Uh, when it comes to, to uh, the hotline and uh, having the tools to maintain contact if, if necessary, of course, this has been an ongoing debate in NATO uh, where sort of in the end, no solution was, was uh, found on, on the mill-to-mill -mill contacts. And of course, uh, the dialogue uh, in the NATO-Russian Council uh, really has been uh, lacking. Uh, and I would say not for, for our, uh, not for lack of trying from the ally side, but in getting the Russians to engage in substantial questions in a meaningful way, I, I would say has been the problem. Uh, the hotline as such between the headquarters of the Northern Fleet and the Norwegian Joint Headquarters in Buda, uh, it's actually a Skype line. <laughs> they test it every week. They call each other up uh, on Skype. They have the connection open. They know, know who to speak with and uh, it works. Uh, we've we've used it on uh, on occasion. Uh, what we we haven't seen the same level of unpredictability and sort of blatant aggressive behavior uh, in Norwegian territory or territorial waters or airspace as you have seen, for example, in the Baltic Sea. Uh, we have had uh, several instances of uh, aggressive flying, uh, flying simulated attack patterns against Norwegian targets uh, or against allied uh, naval forces uh, on exercise, uh, and also flying very close to our maritime patrol aircraft in the Barents Sea, but not uh, the breach of, of uh, national airspace, for example, that you have seen towards Sweden or Finland and in the Baltics. So it is, it is somewhat different. Uh, and we raise uh, our concerns uh, directly with the Russians uh, when they occur. Uh, and our intelligence services have been very uh, public about this, actually showing what they are doing and, and how what this would entail in a real situation. Uh, and I think that works, uh, has worked to an extent. We also had several instances of GPS jamming uh, across the border in uh, Finnmark. Uh, which of course has uh, potentially huge consequences, not only militarily, but uh, towards civilian uh, electronic infrastructure, uh, rescue services, uh, aircraft landing at the, at the local airport, for example. Uh, so this is something that we also raised directly with, with the Russians. Uh, and uh, after that, we have seen uh, no instances uh, in that regard. Uh, when it comes to transparency and uh, sort of the, the whole arms control regime uh, around Europe. Uh, it's really in a sad, sad state right now. Uh, and uh, of course, the, uh, we have expressed our regret that the US left the Open Skies Treaty, uh, but there is also no doubt uh, that the Russians have been in breach of, of their obligations. Uh, but I think in, in the short term, it's, uh, it's going to be hard to see uh, what we are able to do beyond trying to maintain uh, what is left still uh, and then try to, to build, uh, build on that. Uh, 
Looking at, at the, sort of the Baltic uh, and high north uh, security picture uh, together, I would say that has been one of the most uh, clear developments uh, in the regional threat perception over the last, let's say, five years, five to ten years. Uh, the understanding, uh, which is now shared between the Nordic and Baltic and Northern European actors, uh, that these two theaters are very much one. Uh, and of course, the, the route to the Baltics for, uh, let's say, reinforcements from the from, uh, continental US goes through the North Atlantic. Uh, and that means that you have to see these things uh, in a connected way. And that also influences uh, NATO's planning and thinking in a, in a whole different way. Uh, and that shared understanding and perception has allowed for much more substantial discussions between the Nordic and Baltic countries, be they NATO members, EU members or not. Uh, on, uh, I would say, also very concrete issues, such as capabilities development, sharing of information, uh, doing joint planning. And there is very much an evolution ongoing in this. You have the regional network, which is uh, called NORDEFCO, which is the, the defense, uh, Nordic Defense Corporation. Uh, but you also have increasing, uh, increasingly strong bonds on a bilateral and trilateral level uh, the latest being a new trilateral agreement between Norway, Sweden, and Finland uh, as to, to uh, joint, uh, more joint planning and uh, the, uh, the uh, increasing our, our defense cooperation on all levels. And I think this goes very much hand in hand with NATO. And of course, Sweden and Finland, I would say, are as uh, integrated with NATO as you can be without being an actual member. And as you say, for, for Norway, and I would say for, for NATO members, the line, there is a line there. The line is Article 5 uh, and the, the automatic guarantee, which is uh, inherent in, in, uh, in Article 5. Uh, but it's an excellent cooperation, and they are very close partners. And of course, also on the bilateral level with the US, now with uh, new host support agreements uh, and bilateral agreements and a much stronger operational cooperation. Uh, looking at the digital picture, uh, we had we experienced an attack uh, towards the Norwegian Parliament uh, earlier this uh, this autumn, uh, and it, this is the first time we have directly attributed it uh, to the Russians. Uh, and in light of the information we we possessed, there was there was no doubt about it. So this this was an, a political attribution made by the Norwegian government, and then we've had a um, a police investigation ongoing as well, which has been concluded uh, and which uh, which pointed in the same direction uh, very very clearly. Uh, of course, being uh, independent of the executive uh, as such. Uh, but we, these attacks are ongoing all the time. Uh, and uh, in this case, being an attack on, a, uh, on our key democratic body, so to say, the Norwegian parliament, uh, it was important for us to, to uh, shout out, I would say, against this, uh, this behavior. Uh, and you need to draw the line somewhere. Uh, and of course, this is uh, this has been ongoing in Europe uh, and across the Atlantic for for years, uh, and it continues every day. But uh, we need to call them when we see them. This is, uh, I think, the approach. Oh, uh, just one point on the Arctic Connect. Uh, this, uh, my understanding is that this is being uh, driven primarily by by private Finnish actors uh, with potential funding from China, uh, but still very much up in the air. Uh, so these are difficult conditions to, to work under, of course, uh, drawing um, that kind of infrastructure through the, through the Northeast Passage. 
So we'll see how it sort of develops uh, over time. But looking at uh, broadband, uh, for example, uh, accessibility and penetration, the Norwegian high north actually has much better broadband than uh, large parts of, of continental Europe. So it's uh, this part of the Arctic is, is very much uh, connected and uh, digital already. Uh, and that also has consequences for, for what we can do in the regional cooperation, such as uh, focusing on e-health, uh, long distance education and, and other important priorities for both our domestic policies and also in the regional cooperation. Thank you, Mr. Secretary and Dan and Matt for starting this conversation off so well. Perhaps uh, we have a number of questions, Mr. Secretary, and I'm gonna put them in some buckets uh, so that we can work through them. The first is, uh, can you connect the, the major themes out of the new High North white paper, uh, foreign policy, security, economic development, can you tie those to what you think the implications are for the relationship between Norway and Russia? Are there opportunities there? Are parts of the white paper designed to counter or enhance or integrate further with your uh, ongoing Russia-Norway cooperation? Was it written in a context for, for Norway? Was it written in an Arctic context? Or was it written in a context that is taking into consideration the Norwegian-Russian relationship? So that's, that's one theme. The second is, can you please comment on the current situation in Svalbard? Uh, perhaps talk a little bit about that treaty, but more importantly, what do you see in terms of Russian-Norwegian interactions there, uh, Russian mes messaging in Svalbard? Uh, and do we consider that, do you consider that a possible tension point anytime in the future? That's another bucket of multiple questions. A third, since you brought up China, uh, is uh, Norway's perspective on Chinese investment in Norway, but also in other Arctic nations. And I'll give you one more bucket, which would be um, how does Norway balance the need for economic development in the North, like most Northern countries, and impacts and implications for the environment, which is changing dramatically uh, as we speak today. So I've tried as best as I can to bring those into themes that I'm hoping then my colleagues can, can interact with you based on your answers and your thoughts on those. Thank you. Thank you, Mike, uh, big buckets. Uh, no, but uh, we presented our new white paper to, to Parliament uh, only uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's, uh, it's right here. It's about 200 pages. Uh, it was the first white paper on the ACU for uh, nine years. So uh, conditions around the, in and around the Arctic have changed since 2011. Uh, there will be a English uh, substantive summary uh, at some point uh, after early in, in uh, 2021, uh, and hopefully uh, you will be able to to use that as also a uh, to gain uh, broader insights in in the Norwegian policies on these issues. And actually, the three levels you mentioned, Mike, are, are very much interconnected, and uh, that interconnection is what informs the white paper as such. Uh, because the, the previous white papers uh, presented to Parliament on, on Arctic issues have very, they have been very 
broad, very sort of outward looking, focusing on, on foreign policy, on, uh, on the, the international uh, aspects of, of the high north and the Arctic. Uh, in this white paper, we uh, maintain sort of that uh, perspective. Uh, with a new analysis of the geopolitical dynamics, the role of the Arctic in geopolitics, uh, great power uh, dynamics, uh, and, and such. But we also sort of go down a level to see uh, at the relationship between domestic policies, the development of our own Arctic region, uh, and how that needs to be shaped to uh, meet the new challenges, uh, not least the challenge from climate change and from the international dynamics, but also uh, challenges when it comes to uh, demography, for example, uh, with people moving south, uh, maintaining uh, a level of population that will continue to, to, uh, to serve sort of the, a national interest. And, to, to sort of understand the paper, I think you, you also need to, to understand uh, the European and uh, the Norwegian Arctic, which is very different from the North American Arctic. Uh, in Norway, uh, more than 550,000 people live above the Arctic Circle. Uh, we have major population centers. Uh, as I said, we have a better broadband penetration than, uh, than uh, much of continental Europe. Uh, we have innovative technology industries, we have uh, fisheries, uh, we have uh, marine services industries, we have two several universities. Uh, so this is a place where people live, where we need to uh, continue to develop infrastructure to create jobs, uh, to have um, you know, culture and, uh, and uh, available uh, and make sure people want to, to live. So looking at the dynamic between those two levels and also I would say the regional pictures, what, is, what makes sense to do across borders? What makes sense to do within uh, the Barents uh, regional and state-to-state uh, -state level cooperation? What makes sense to bring to the Arctic Council? Uh, and looking just at distances, uh, a lot of cross-border cooperation of course makes sense. What kind of infrastructure should be developed uh, across borders? Uh, so looking at these, all these three levels, um, together uh, was really the purpose of this, uh, this white paper. Uh, and to a certain extent, I would say that the Russian Arctic uh, across the border is, is very much the same. Uh, this is the region uh, in the Arctic where the most people live. Uh, Murmansk has 300,000 people or so uh, living there. Uh, two and a half million people live uh, in Northwestern Russia. So this is also, so on a lot of these issues we have similar interests and we need to to maintain uh, the infrastructure and develop the regions uh, while having a, a sustainable resource development. So uh, Svalbard. Uh, Svalbard of course is Norwegian territory uh, and Norway, uh, Norway's sovereignty over Svalbard is, is undisputed uh, and uh, what is, is often misunderstood uh, is that uh, the crux, so to say, or the, the core of the Svalbard Treaty is uh, non-discrimination uh, and uh, the equal treatment of uh, the state parties, citizens and businesses, not the states themselves. So it is the citizens and businesses of uh, the parties that have uh, a right uh, to equal treatment uh, within certain defined areas, such as mining, such as um, 
hunting uh, and, and commercial activities. Uh, Svalbard is uh, a Norwegian community. It, has, it is changing from a, a community built around coal mining, uh, which of course in the current uh, with the current prices has not been viable and not environmentally viable uh, for, for quite some time. Uh, so it is changing in a way to into a more modern, uh, sustainable community. Uh, approximately 2,700 people live in Longyearbyen, which is a Norwegian community. Uh, and then we have approximately uh, 450 people living in, in Barentsburg, uh, which is the, the base of uh, the Russian mining company, Trust Arctic Google. But of course, it is regulated. It is Norwegian. It is regulated by Norwegian law and Norwegian regulation. And on the day-to-day -day basis, uh, it works very well. Uh, we experienced that uh, the dialogue with uh, the Russian company and uh, Russian authorities that have a, a consulate in Svalbard works well. Uh, they respect Norwegian regulation. Uh, and it is, uh, I would say, on the, on the practical level, uh, well-functioning. Uh, there was a tragic uh, helicopter accident a few years back uh, with a Russian helicopter uh, crashing uh, with, uh, with uh, eight people being, being killed. Uh, Russian rescue services uh, were very respectful of Norwegian uh, sovereignty and, and Norwegian jurisdiction, uh, very helpful uh, in that regard. So, but of course, on the political level, uh, we see Russian messaging uh, with a message that they want to discuss small body issues, which we of course don't do. We don't discuss uh, sovereignty issues or jurisdiction issues with any of the parties to the conference. This is Norwegian territory. Uh, and uh, I would say that the, their points of view are well known. They have been uh, constant for uh, decades. Uh, but what is new is a very public messaging as to their displeasure with the uh, Norwegian uh, management, so to say, of, of Svalbard. And, uh, so there are some, some, uh, some issues that continue to, to pop up uh, and in a very direct uh, manner, as, is, uh, as the Russian MFA also often uh, does. Uh, China. Uh, and this might, uh, you know, with looking at it from Washington, this might, might sound a bit controversial. Uh, but I would argue that uh, the Chinese presence uh, and sort of footprint in the Arctic uh, is currently not the threat that it's being made up to be. Uh, and I will, uh, sort of my, my arguments for that is that I think the awareness of the potential of China in the Arctic is much higher than some years back. Uh, and what we see is generally sort of a few real cases generating a lot of attention without there necessarily being a lot of substance uh, beyond uh, the attention it is given. Of course, there are major Chinese investments uh, when it comes to energy in Russia, uh, the LNG fields, uh, Novotak, for example. And, uh, but beyond that, uh, if you start going concretely uh, into the aspects, uh, it is a bit exaggerated at times. Uh, and I think the, the attention among the Arctic countries uh, as to the potential challenges that major investments, for example, would uh, entail, it has really, really risen. And there is much more vigilance, much more cooperation between the countries, much stronger dialogue. Uh, 
and of course for the Russians as well, uh, this is a dilemma. Uh, this is their uh, uh, a highly prioritized strategic region for them. Now, how far will they let the Chinese in? Uh, I think that is an ongoing discussion, so to say, on on the um, on, on the Russian side. Uh, from Norway's side, we have been very clear. Uh, we do not wish to uh, to uh, have any kind of uh, BRI uh, cooperation with China or any BRI uh, MOU. Uh, we maintain a, uh, a dialogue on Arctic issues, uh, and we have a, a general uh, perspective where we would say we we welcome. Uh, outside actors, uh, as long as they uh, respect uh, the established governance frameworks and respect international law. Uh, and so far, I would say China is doing that. Uh, but of course, it is something we are we are following very closely. And we see not least actors close to the Chinese government that bring a different perspective uh, into the region, trying to uh, more actively challenge the established norms and, and regimes uh, that are there. Uh, so is it a potential challenge going forward? Obviously, is it something where we have to be very vigilant uh, and work together as allies and friends, uh, obviously, as well. But uh, I, I, uh, I would say that uh, this is sometimes uh, exaggerated a little bit. Thank you. Uh, Matt, let me open the floor to you again. No, I, I simply would... Uh comment on the uh, territorial issue and the kind of management of uh, what would have been really poisonous dynamics in other uh, parts of the European and uh, Eurasian space as uh, quite a positive example. Um, again, I, you know, I, I'm really in search at this uh, very uh kind of open-ended moment we don't we don't know for sure yet what will be the theme uh if there will be a, a sort of central arc uh to the new u.s administration uh posture on russia um you know one might argue uh the the relationship could hardly be uh more contentious or adversarial and yet uh the russian optimist in me would say it could always be worse and so i'm very much in search of kind of models uh, for more successful management. And one of the issues uh, that arises there is the issue of sanctions. Um, you know, and again, I know this is an area where, where Norway has uh, balance, as, as Dan underscored as well, uh, the, the uh, interest in, in transatlantic solidarity and European solidarity uh, with the need to maintain certain, certain levels of engagement. I would argue there's also a kind of psychological dimension to sanctions that has bled into other um, uh, areas of bilateral interaction. And I'd be curious how, how you've managed this, which is uh, we've reached the point now after six years of, of increasingly intense, uh, and now the European Union has again extended uh, Ukraine-related sanctions for another six months, increasingly permanent uh, Western sanctions on Russia that a lot of the Russian people basically believe uh, the Kremlin when the Kremlin says, these sanctions are not about any specific policy, they're about hurting Russia. And I know on the American side, uh, it's very often the case, Dan has I think even been on, on panels like this, sharing the stage with US officials. Uh, I know I have where when, uh, when they are asked, well, you know, how are the sanctions working? Tell us how the sanctions are working. Uh, I know this happens, by the way, in the European Parliament as well. 
the best that they can usually do is to point to damage to the Russian economy to say essentially Russians are poorer as a result of the sanctions. What they're not able to do is point to policy changes. Um, so I wonder, you know, from from your perspective, when you think about in particular, uh, you know, energy relationships, um, small and medium sized businesses, family businesses, things like that, that I know are uh, important uh, and and perhaps uh, in the future, increasingly trade and transportation links uh, in the high north. I mean, how do you think about the dynamic we're in where it does seem inevitable that some degree of uh, suffocation of, of the economy through sanctions is going to be necessary, is going to remain in place for quite a long time? I think the the question of sanctions is is one that uh, you know, as you say, Matt, it, it touches really upon uh, a lot of issues. If you look at uh, Norway, Russia, as I said, we we have aligned with all the EU measures, uh, going back to to Crimea and of course the the, the Donbas, uh, especially. Uh, so from what happened was that. Uh, what had the most direct consequences uh, for uh, the Norwegian-Russian commercial relationship uh, was, of course, uh, that the sanctions uh, were introduced uh, on uh, specific kinds of uh, energy cooperation and uh, deep water offshore uh, technology exchange, for example, uh, which was at the very core of uh, a lot of the commercial activity uh, going on between Norway and, and Russia. And, a lot of the interest from, or a lot of the, um, the presence and the investments from the Norwegian uh, energy companies uh, and uh, supply and uh, technology companies were specifically sort of within that uh, sector and within that that niche. Uh, so that was was cut off uh, almost overnight in in 2014, uh, and then, of course, as, as the Russians did their countermeasures, they struck at seafood exports. Uh, which was the second big uh, leg, so to say, of the commercial relationship. Uh, no, in uh, completely unfounded, uh, with a sort of no relation to to uh, uh, to, the, to technology transfer or anything, but it hit at the heart of the economy. So it was pure, purely a retaliatory uh, measure. So the seafood exports also dropped uh, almost to zero uh, within a year. Uh, and of course, that has uh, that has lasting impact. Uh, so what we are seeing now is that uh, you know, Norwegian businesses, Russian businesses are trying to work within uh, a much narrower framework uh, where the potential is it's much smaller, uh, and there is room to develop the economic uh, relationship within within sectors that are sort of not uh, sanctioned and are, are not uh, in any way uh, dangerous, so to say. Uh, a lot more attention is, of course, being given to, to uh, dual use technology and sort of uh, export of uh, civilian uh, <clears throat> uh, exports that can be used for, for uh, military purposes. Uh, but still, there, there is obviously a room to develop uh, economic relationship. It is uh, still ongoing, I would say, on a day to day basis with people going across the border to, uh, to buy you know, electronics on the Norwegian side or gasoline on the Russian side. So, so that is actually a pretty big economy uh, across the border uh, already. But as to the, uh, to the, um, to the sort of the bigger uh, perspective, uh, 
will this induce uh, in the end um, behavioral ch changes on the, on the Russian side? I don't know. Uh, but uh, I think the, the maintenance uh, remains important, uh, not least as a, uh, as a uh, uh, to illustrate uh, the allied cohesion and uh, allied unity in reacting to, to completely unacceptable behavior in, in breach of, of international law. Uh, and I would say, you know, I am in many ways, um, to be honest, a bit positively surprised that that cohesion is still holding. I don't think that was a given uh, if you look at, at politics across Europe uh, just a few years back. So uh, I think that's a, a sign of, uh, of a unity, at least in, uh, in difficult circumstances. Thank you for that. I have a, a follow up to that, and then I'm going to uh, go to my colleague, Dan. Uh, Mr. Secretary, the, a couple of things have come up uh, over, the, over the last, I would say, uh, six months related to the transatlantic uh, alliance. And many of us have, have looked to the Arctic Council as perhaps an internal uh, to, to the alliance, an internal mechanism for confidence building amongst allies, that, that that's a place where we can maybe re-energize relationships that may, may have been stressed over the last few years. So I'd wonder, your, wonder about your thoughts in terms of the importance of the Arctic Council internal to, to uh, at least the transatlantic alliance. I'd also like your thoughts on the role of the Arctic Council vis-a-vis uh, -vis Norway to engage and perhaps advance issues between Norway and Russia. Is the Arctic uh, Council and the Arctic Economic Council, are those two mechanisms that could help further the relationship between Norway and Russia? Uh, and what do you suspect could be some opportunities while Russia takes the chairmanship of the Arctic Council? I realize there's a lot there, but those themes do run together. And then after after your comments, I'll, I'll turn the floor over to my colleague, Dan. Oh, thank you, Mike. Uh, well, for, first of all, for, for Norway, the Arctic Council is a hugely important regional format. Uh, and I think not only on the political level, but also in a very practical level uh, with the work of the, of the working groups uh, on the research cooperation, uh, on the uh, cooperation agreements that have been signed on, uh, on um, oil spill uh, preparedness, uh, on uh, cooperation in, in uh, the exchange of uh, Arctic research data, for example. So I think it is, it is two things. It is a political arena for discussions uh, on issues of mutual interest. And it is a very sort of practical tool in, in uh, dealing with uh, policy issues and very practical issues in the region. Uh, and maintaining you know, that dual approach, I think, uh, has been very much uh, part of the why the, the Arctic Council is seen as a success. Uh, and of course, there has been a, a clear understanding uh, between the, the members of uh, keeping hard security issues off the agenda. And I think that also has been part of the, the, um, the success of the council. And I would say that because uh, even as uh, sort of tensions spill into the region, or, or actually they come back into the region, you, even though you know, for the past 25 years, this has been a, a part of the world where we can, we have been able to, to focus only on cooperation and dialogue and, and working together. Uh, if you go back before that to the Cold War, this was, of course, a, an area of very high tension. Uh, and that part was, you know, 
in a way it was always there uh, with uh, the Russian Northern Fleet and the, uh, the strategic importance of the Kola Peninsula and uh, the ba Russian Bastion, so to say. But we, we have the luxury of being able to forget it, in a sense, for, uh, for uh, some decades. So I think the challenge going forward for the Council uh, and for, uh, for us as allies and for like-minded uh, is going to be able to sort of to keep working within the framework of the Council, uh, using the pieces that have served us very well to focus on um, mutual challenges, not least uh, the consequences of climate change, which is of course going to impact us all hugely. It is happening at a tremendous pace in the Arctic while you know being forced to be much more conscious of that strategic dimension uh, as well that is has been been re-emerging uh, and of course the the uh, there are discussions as to to uh, whether uh, hard security and strategic uh, issues should be brought on the council's agenda uh, we would not uh, we do not support that i think we have other formats uh, which are more suitable uh, for that. And the, the, the problem right now is not the, the lack of formats for, for talking. It is the, the will, primarily on the Russian side, of course, to, to actually engage in substantive, constructive, good faith uh, talks. But uh, that being said, uh, as, I, as I mentioned in my initial remarks, uh, I would say that the Russians have a constructive approach to the council uh, and they have seen it i think you know also as a, in their self-interest uh, as a tool to to uh, maintain a, a uh, sense of control over uh, developments in the region as you know this is a consensus organ so uh, highly controversial uh, you know, national interest issues uh, will be uh, blocked by by one or more of, of the uh, the members uh, and rather than having uh, Arctic discussions about the Arctic taking place outside uh, the auspices of the Council, I think uh, there's also a, a, an interest in, in maintaining that sort of grip uh, on, on those discussions. Uh, there, are, there have been signals uh, I've seen uh, in the Russian media and uh, with statements uh, as to the Russian wish, wish to sort of bring uh, that security dimension into the Council. Uh, we haven't seen that uh, any, anything concrete on that yet, uh, but it's obviously a, a development that we we have to follow. Uh, as and they will, uh, they have not been very clear on their priorities for the chairmanship yet, uh, which of course they are they are taking over from Iceland in in May. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, so I was thinking about Matt's point about are there examples in this area, in this region, you know, that offer lessons. And uh, it's always struck me that the the Arctic is not just an institution. The Arctic, you mentioned the Arctic Council, and then there's the Law of the Sea, but the Arctic is what at least some scholars would call a regime. It's a whole set of norms and principles and rules and processes that involve both state and non-state actors. And the Arctic Council is maybe the hub of those networks, but what makes the Arctic regime innovative is that it is you know, open to experimentation, including with countries that don't always agree. And I think that's uh, where some lessons can be found. 
of how you balance, you know, rights of non-state actors. I mean, the Arctic Council has the whole, uh, per, you know, indigenous peoples represented. There's a whole, there's a whole another dimension to this beyond, you know, a state-to-state -state type of uh, process. And I realize you said earlier in your remarks, you're not looking for more governance structures. Um, but I, if you think about the Arctic regime, the way I'm trying to describe it, I wonder if you think there are lessons for others or whether you think there are other things that could be done in terms of these informal networks, other types of arrangements that might uh, mitigate some of the, as I said, some of the security concerns you have and related the environmental concern. I mean, the Arctic is now in my, you know, my sense, the canary in the coal mine about climate change. It's, it's a cold region, but it's the fastest warming region on earth. And can you really afford to wait for the Paris climate accords and all these things to move ahead? Or can't there be, uh, and shouldn't there be more done in a regional basis that would by nature have to include Russia? Uh, I know there's a lot of work going on, but I'm not sure it's apparent you know, more widely what actually is happening in that space. I think you are very right in pointing to uh, this regime, as you call it, uh, and how not only the Arctic Council has been able to work on, on many levels, but also uh, this is the, the core idea of, of the Barents uh, Council and the Barents Corporation, where you have uh, on the state-to-state -state level, you have the uh, Barents Euro-Arctic Council, uh, and then you have a regional counting, uh, council composed, uh, composed of, of the 14 uh, regions. Uh, and you have a joint chairmanship uh, with Norway now currently being the chair of, of the Barents Arctic Council, uh, and then Vesterbotten, uh, the region in Sweden, uh, chairing the regional chair council. Uh, and of course, also working with uh, indigenous people uh, who are represented uh, on, on all levels, uh, hugely important. Uh, and that, of course, also goes. Uh, back to, to the Arctic Council, where you see that the working groups have been uh, very highly integrated with uh, the research community, with uh, academic institutions, uh, and also trying to bring on board, going back to Mike's point, the, the, uh, Arms, the, sorry, the, the Arctic Economic uh, Cooperation Council, where we try to bring businesses together and, and developing uh, joint products and, and uh, sort of getting that cross-regional dimension. So uh, it is, a, I think, a, a good illustration of, of your point. Uh, what I would say is that you know, this is working well because it has been I would, developed over time, I think, and with uh, the actors actually spending resources on it. Uh, I mentioned the, the funding we do for the people-to-people -people programs. And of course, uh, this is something where uh, the actors over time have been willing to establish the necessary structures uh, through the working groups of the council uh, being financed by, by the parties, uh, establishing a permanent secretariat uh, and sort of building layer upon layer of, of cooperation. Uh, and is that possible to transfer uh, sort of beyond the Arctic? Uh, 
possibly, but uh, I don't have any sort of <laughs> any silver bullet as to how that can, could be could be done. Uh, but I think it, it's an object for study that perhaps has uh, could have uh, or generate interest uh, other, on other parts of the globe. Uh, the environment uh, we could talk much more about that, but as you say, uh, this uh, climate change is very real in the Arctic. Just over the last year, uh, seeing now the developments on the Greenland ice shelf, uh, this is, uh, for ex as one example, uh, Svalbard has had 31 years, consecutive years of uh, above average uh, temperatures, uh, as far back as we have uh, as we have data, uh, and uh, warming is happening at more than three times the global pace. Uh, so this is uh, this is happening before our eyes, and of course the, the implications of that with uh, the melting ice in the polar sea, uh, possible thawing of the permafrost, uh, it has huge implications for today today's Arctic. Uh, but this is not something that can be addressed on a regional level due to the fact that most of the emissions creating this change uh, do not originate in the region; they originate uh, beyond the region. So you get a sort of uh, an interface, so to say, of or a negative spiral between uh, regional developments in the Arctic, uh, affecting weather patterns and uh, ocean temperatures, uh, driving changes uh, on, a, on a global level and, and vice versa. Uh, and it's hugely uh, concerning. And of course, um, the Arctic is, is quite literally melting uh, before our eyes. Uh, so that is why we uh, hope that all countries uh, step up to, to their climate uh, obligations under the Paris Treaty and uh, Norway is a strong proponent of, of the Paris Treaty uh, and I really don't think there are any uh, alternatives uh, on the global level uh, and in, the, and in the sort of getting the necessary results uh, other than um, bringing together um, the whole global community and of course the, the Paris Accord is, is in no way perfect uh, but it is the tool that we have to to uh, generate um, should I say a common approach and we very much welcome I would say the signals of the U new US administration to to step back into this Paris Treaty it's going to be hugely important to have the US back in driving that agenda on a global scale Thank you, Mr. Secretary. Perhaps that's a perfect way to end this discussion before I hand it over to Matt for, for some closing thoughts, is that we've explored those two words we, we talked about earlier, deterrence and reassurance across a long, a long list of, of issues. So I want to thank you very much for providing uh, great insight here today on a whole host of issues. And thank you for spending your evening with us there, there in Norway. Uh, we know it's been a long day for you. Matt, let me turn it to you for some closing thoughts and, and a conclusion. Thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you very much, uh, Mike, and thank you, Dan, and of course, uh, thank you, Mr. State Secretary. Uh, I would simply say this has been a valuable discussion to learn about the uh, unique dynamics of the Norway-Russia relationship, to learn about the broader security, environmental, and human dynamics in the Arctic region, which we follow closely, uh, but also as an illustration of a principle that is going to be very much discussed it already has been very much discussed with the arrival of the Biden administration in Washington over the next several months, and that is the value of alliances. There is going to be, I think it, it's, it's almost a foregone conclusion, uh, a re-emphasis on especially the transatlantic alliance. 
Uh, and I would simply underscore as someone who works on engagement with Russia and managing a competitive and contentious relationship, um, that some of the value of those alliances is in learning, is in insights from what allies do that is a little bit different, that is complementary, uh, and that maybe in some cases can, can help in a kind of uh, balancing partnership. Allies can do things we Americans cannot do and, and vice versa. And I think that this conversation uh, has been especially illustrative of that. And I'm very grateful uh, to you, Mr. State Secretary, for, for entertaining my questions and my attempts to learn from, from you and your example. So thank you all once again. Uh, thanks to those who joined us and submitted questions. Uh, and we will be continuing this series and, and we hope to speak with you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you again.